Pray with me. Father, uh, God, thank you for the name of Jesus. Thank you for the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Lord, would we believe that in this room? Would I believe that? Would my brothers and sisters in this room actually believe and realize even just a, a mustard seed of faith that we might believe in the power of your name, Jesus Christ? God, please give us that gift of faith. Lord, we want to love you more. We want to fall in love with you. We want to know you more. And in doing so and in staring at you, we believe we will love you and our lives will be changed and your power will take root. And so, Lord, that's what we ask for. Father, thank you for worship, Lord. Thank you that you are a God worthy of our worship. Thank you that you are a God who is in control. And um, we're grateful, Father. Would tonight you be glorified um, in our lives, in the preaching of your word, and that the end of this night the name of Jesus is what would be stuck in our heads and in our hearts. Lord, would you do that work? You are the only one capable of doing that work. So, Father, do that work. We pray this with confidence and humility in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Hey, welcome to Renovate. Glad you're here. Um, my name is Ben. Uh, man, praise God. I uh, am so appreciative of you men and Jessica and just leading us in, in worship. Uh, I'm so appreciative that we have a group of leaders led by Casey um, that aren't playing music for us on Wednesday night, but they're leading us in worship. So it's awesome. Okay, uh, here's what we're doing. I have the largest water ever purchased here. Set that right there. Um, so last, the last couple weeks, if you've been around Renovate, we've done this series called um, Renovate Church and the Culture. And we kind of did a general uh, talk two weeks ago on what it looks like for Christians and the body of Christ to step into the culture as we're called to do obediently and to how to love our culture well. And then last week, we zoomed in on kind of one issue uh, that we identified that maybe as Christians, we're not very good at uh, stepping into, and that's the issue of homosexuality. And that's an issue that I think a lot of times we as Christians just swing and miss on. We, we end up not being able to know how to love people well. We don't uh, understand that well. And we can't speak truth. And we can't uh, balance that with grace in a, in a great way. Uh, so we stepped into that. And so now we're going to kind of take a step away from the culture and church series. But I want you guys to be looking for it because our hope for Renovate is every quarter we're going to do one of those. So just kind of be looking for that branding and that logo that says Renovate Church and Culture coming up, and we're going to zoom in. So the next time, uh, here in a couple months when we do it, uh, we're going to zoom in on racial reconciliation, hopefully, and what that really looks like. And, and then each quarter, we're going to do a new one. So be looking for that. However, what we're starting tonight, and what I get the privilege of starting tonight, is a new three-week series on idols. Um, we're going to be unpacking what it looks like. Um, what this issue of idols is and how we really turn from them and, and what even that means. But before I jump into idols and kind of unpacking this term, uh, I want us to look first at what it looks like and what it means to be a worshiper, uh, what it means to actually be a worshiper. And I think so often when we think of worshipers, we think of what just happened. We think of music. We think of worshiping Christ or, or worshiping through music. Uh, and that's incredibly valid, but really, uh, I want us to see worship as much broader and much deeper than that. 
I want us to see worship uh, as our adoration, as our affection, as our devotion and, and even surrender um, in our lives to something that is greater, something that is worthy of our worship. Um, and yes, music is a big part of that. Uh, I love how music worship, music-led worship, really stirs my affections, right? You got Richard on the drums and then Chike with the bass, and he just gets that bass line going, and I feel the Holy Spirit like swelling up inside of me because of the bass, and he need, the Holy Spirit needs the bass in order to stir up in me. It's not really true, although I do think Chike has a spiritual gift of bass playing that produces greater sanctification in my life. Uh, I know in seasons of deep sin struggle, I just listen to a track of Chike playing bass, and I see those sins wash away, and the temptations leave me. Okay, that's all a lie, but my point is, my point is that, that musical worship is actually an incredible component of that. And, and certainly to have our affections stirred for our God, to be put in a place where we can receive his words, where we can be reciting truth about who Jesus is and who he is and, and in this context is incredibly important and is a huge part of worship. But it is not, worship is not just music. Worship is our adoration and our affection. It's our submitting to something. And the reality is, the truth, the premise of the next three weeks is that we are worshipers. You are a worshiper. You can't help it. You are inherently designed, created to be someone who is going to find something to worship. Not just once, but constantly throughout your life, you will plug into things to worship because that is how we believe biblically God has designed you to function. You are a worshiper. And you will spend your life worshiping something. But the worthiness of what you worship will determine everything about your life. Let me say that again. You will spend your life worshiping something, but the worthiness of that something that you choose to worship, the worthiness of that object of your worship is going to determine so much about your life. You're a worshiper, no doubt, but what are you worshiping? Um, I've got a little illustration here that this may be cheesy to some of you guys. Yashua, will you hand me that colander down there? Um, for me, this was just an image that as I was trying to wrestle through the last couple weeks how to prepare for this, um, this was just an image that, again, this might be campy for you guys, but I just, I had it seared in my mind of how, how do I see myself as a worshiper and especially worshiping in, in false senses. So you're going to pour your life, pour your worship into something, pour your life into something. However, if the object of what you're pouring your life into is not designed to sustain that or keep that worship, then it's going to get me in trouble with the carpet guys. But the reality is if, 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 you're not, if you're pouring your worship in your life into something that isn't designed to be worthy of that, to not be able to substantiate that, then you're going to be left empty. Maybe you find things, maybe you find things that hold your worship a little better, right? We find things that we're pouring our life into, we're worshiping those things, uh, and, and vice versa, the things that you are worshiping, you will pour your life out for. And maybe you're pouring your life into something, and maybe it holds it a little better, and maybe we live in kind of this facade of thinking that, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm really pouring my life into something that, that really is giving me purpose. But we would see biblically that eventually that's going to dry up. And there's all of these counterfeit gods that we're going to pour our worship into. So the challenge of the next few weeks is finding that thing that is worthy of our worship, that sustains our worship. 
that is capable of being something worthy to contain and be refreshed and be refilled and give us life and purpose. And that's the challenge of the next few weeks. And I think those of you guys who know where we're going, it's like, okay, well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the glass. I got it. We can skip to the end. The glass is Jesus. Right. Yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Here's the thing, though. Um, this isn't a one-time thing. And I think if you hear this sermon, uh, or you hear the next few sermons, and you think, okay, I should be worshiping Jesus, so I need to make this kind of one, one-time profession or kind of this recentering. okay, I'm going to worship Jesus. This is a daily decision. It is a daily fight in your life. Tomorrow morning, there will be false idols, false gods vying for your worship that will ask you to pour your life and pour your worship and pour your affection and pour your value into them, and they will not be worthy of that, and they will not sustain, and they will not hold water, and the streams of your heart are going to flow in all different areas on a daily basis. And for you, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, then even more so, listen, because you would would really be able to identify, hopefully, man, all of the streams that my life has been pouring into, I would make the argument, and biblically, and I think the Lord is going to reveal to you, have those left you filled, or have they left you empty? And it's a daily battle, and it's something we daily identify. And so tonight, even, I hope that there's conviction in my own life and in your life of, man, it's, yes, I, I get it, it's Jesus, but how... How do I become a constant worshiper? How do I remove these other idols, these other false gods? Um, Our history and our current events are filled with stories, sad stories of people who have found their life being poured out for something else and left empty. Kurt Cobain, who is the lead singer of Nirvana, um, who really created a new music revolution out of Seattle with the band Nirvana, uh, changed, changed alternative rock, Uh, was worshipped on stage, had his dream, had money, had success, had everything that he wanted and desired and was chasing after and had it in spades, ended up taking his life because it wasn't, it was empty. He was worshipping and chasing something that wasn't able to hold the streams of water from his heart and he was empty. Robin Williams, sadly, same thing. King Solomon in the Old Testament, we see similarly This king who had been given everything, I mean, wives and money and wisdom and favor and this, I mean, everything he had. He says in the book of Ecclesiastes, man, he has it all, and yet vanity, vanity, it's all worthless. Without Christ is is this idea, without, with just this chasing of the wind is what all of those things are. And we see that, and we see those examples over and over and over again. In our culture, we see them too. Uh, We see cultural examples like success. Uh, success, whether monetary, whether moving up the ladder, whether, whether getting that extra status at, at work or wherever it is, school, we find that as this thing that that's where we're going to find value. Entertainment, uh, we find worship in the opposite sex, or we find worship in sex itself. Um, sex itself with the opposite sex or even through pornography and our own instant gratification. We find these pockets of worship that we become worshipers of those things, food, comfort, Control, all of these things we're going to be walking through the next few weeks of talking about how, how do we unwrench our broken hearts from these things that aren't actually worthy of it. And the irony is that for those in our culture uh, that, would, that would suggest that this is a secular culture we live in, uh, people in our culture would say, man, there is no God, and, and man, they're just out making money and, and doing their thing, and they would stiff arm um, 
God and Christ and, and the biblical worldview, um, I would argue that they are just as great of worshipers. They are just enslaved to other gods, whether they're working in corporate America, whether they're chasing something else. They're just enslaved to gods that will never give them life, and yet they are worshiping idols, enslaved to those idols. And typically when we say that word, I I think I kind of need to unpack it a little more. When we say idols, I think some of us think of the Old Testament, right, the beginning of the Bible. Uh, There's this golden calf right, that the Israelites build, if, if you've ever heard that story, and they build this big golden calf and they worship it out in the wilderness um, instead of worshiping God. Uh, there's all these stories of these, these statues and these, these altars that people will build to other foreign gods and they'll have physical idols. Or maybe we've savvy enough to have read or heard about um, tribes in, in other countries um, that have worshiped idols, and I think sometimes we just think, okay, well, idols is this statue, this, this tangible thing. It's here in our culture. But I think some of you guys are tracking with me real obviously. It's here in our culture. And I would say it's here in our culture, in our, in our present world, in a much more dangerous, more invasive, sneakier, more destructive way. And it's these heart idols that we have built in our life. It's these things that we have put above God in our life, and we have, it's a heart issue. And I would even make the argument that even in the Old Testament, God knew it was a heart issue. Uh, It's always been a heart issue. Ezekiel 14.3 says this, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. So it's not just statues, right? It's our affection, misplaced affection of our hearts and our worship. And idols are when we take anything and put them above God and find our identity, even if it's for a moment, even if it's for an hour, if it's for a season, and we say, well, but I need this. God, I love you, but I'm going to compartmentalize you here, and this is where I'm going to find my real joy. This is what I'm going to chase after. Idols are counterfeit gods that we're worshiping instead of the creator. Romans 1, 21 and 23, puts it, Paul puts it really well in this, in this book. He says this, for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and listen to this, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Anytime we take something and put it in a position over God, we're committing idolatry. We're committing idolatry. Let me give you some personal examples from me. I'm going to drink out of the bottle rather than drink it out of Jesus. <laughs> I, I took a second there. For me, this is cheesy, I know. Um, cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys. Um, not like cowboys, like wearing boots, that's weird. The actual professional football team in Dallas. There is a period of time, I've seen a lot of growth and healing. I think my wife would testify to this. Um, I've seen a lot of growth and healing in this, but there was a period of time in my life where when we lost, right, which unfortunately happened a lot, when we lost, Literally, I would be, I, like, it was like Jesus had left me. Like, my lack of joy, I, my joy fell through the roof. And it really, and I would carry it for days. Like, I would carry that loss with me for days, and I would be driving, and I'd think about it, and I'd just be like, golly, man, I can't believe, God, where are you? Like, it was like this <laughs> tension in my heart, right, um, that, that really has become, I think I've gotten a little better. We're also winning a lot now, so, that's, so it could just be masked, and, uh, and it could be fine. My own comfort is totally an idol for me, right? I'll put my own comfort above God's will for my life. Um, Here's another one. 
my family. I love my family. My family is, no doubt, it is a gift from the Lord. My wife is a gift that God has given me. She is a good thing, and yet there are times in my life and in our relationship when we were dating, engaged, and married where I have taken my relationship with my wife, which is a good thing, and I have taken it and put it above my God. And I have said, I am going to find my identity and my joy and my satisfaction and my longing, and I'm going to find, I'm going to find that in this relationship with this woman. And as incredible as she is, and as much of a godsend that she is for me, she is not designed to be able to handle that level of worship for me. That's not how God has designed her to be able to do that, and that's setting her up for failure and it's setting me up for failure, and it's taking a good thing and putting it above God. Uh, tonight, I'm going to just zoom in on a big one. Um, and so we're going to spend most of the rest of this time zooming in on one big issue, and it's, it's one that most people would consider in theological circles a, a root idol or a source idol. And there's a few of these. And, and they're really these idols that are so underground that they've got all kinds of branches popping up. And, and they've got all kinds of side effects that happen from this. And this one for me is a big one, and it's, uh, it's the idol of approval. Uh, it's something that, for as long as I can remember, it's been something that I've struggled with to, to surrender to the Lord and trust the Lord. I would define it this way. I would define this idol, this approval, as a longing to be accepted by everyone and desired by everyone. I think everyone in this room probably struggles with this on some level, right? Even the person in the room who says, man, I don't care what people think. I, I think somewhere, you might not struggle with it as much as me. There might be other heart idols that, that you wrestle with. But I think somewhere in there, there's either hurt that's become calloused. And so the idea of approval, maybe it doesn't feel like that's an idol, but really it's just a defense mechanism because you're still enslaved by approval, but because you didn't get it, you've just stiff-armed it and say, well, I don't want it anymore. Um, but I think everyone can, should be affected by this if, if we really look deep enough. And here's how it looks in my life. Um, I think it's, I think it's um, exacerbated by the fact that here I am on stage in front of over 200 people talking about God and all those things. Um, and for the last, you know, um, eight years of, of preaching and being put in front of people, no matter what the demographic, there's really been this idol and wrestle for me at times where before I get up and preach, I can get attacked like nobody's business. And what happens when it starts playing in my head is, no longer am I as concerned with making much of the name of Jesus, right? I'll get distracted from instead of making much of the name of Jesus and wanting him to be glorified tonight, instead I'm sitting there thinking, man, I sure hope these people like me. Man, I hope when I get up there, man, I hope they think I'm funny. I hope they think this illustration is really cute. And man, I hope that they leave really liking me. And the problem with that is that it's really wicked. And the problem with that is I build this foundation and this this idol of I need other people's affirmation because what the Lord says about me isn't enough. What my creator and designer and the one who sustains life and all things, what he has spoken into my life, that isn't enough. I need what this guy says. I need this person to think I'm great. I need my boss to think I'm amazing. I need the people who work for me to think, oh man, you're the best boss. And I need all those things. And, and it, it becomes exhausting. It becomes exhausting and it becomes paralyzing. There's some, uh, there's some other ways that approval is going to pop up in our life. Little red flags, little tangible things. I'm going to list them off. These are maybe red flags that you might see and be like, okay, yeah, I, I do that. 
And then the idea would be, okay, man, maybe look deeper and see what is this idol of approval? How deep does it go? Uh, social media is a big one that reveals this. Um, the desire for us to be seen and literally liked, literally buttons on the screen that say, I like this person. I like this photo. Wow, great dinner. Wow, great coffee with your quiet time. Wow, great quote. Oh, man, way to repost that Donald Trump article. Way to go. Like, right? All of those things. They're all of these, it's, it, we become paralyzed, and, we, and when we catch ourselves checking, and, well, we posted a picture, we put up something fun, or we put up something funny, and we keep drawing back to it and say, hey, how many people liked it? And, oh, man, and, and not that there isn't a healthy level of that, but when that starts to happen, when that starts to take root, when we start to see patterns of the frequency that we're on social media, the frequency that we're proclaiming this it, it's called the histrionic impulse. The histrionic impulse is, is what is in every little boy or little girl that in a kindergarten class wants to stand up on a table and say, look at me. And it's the histrionic impulse that's in us that says, look at me, like me, see me, validate me, let me find my value from there. And social media is a platform that celebrates that, that, that runs off of that. That's a red flag. That's a, that's a way that we might identify, okay, there's a deeper heart issue. Um, certainly our looks, right, being affirmed for our looks, um, which then ties into body image. And we become enslaved by, man, I want, I want that guy to think that I look beautiful, and so I need to be enslaved to try to get this body image. Or I want this girl to think that I'm masculine enough, so I need to get this body image. And we become a slave to those things. And there's this root issue that what our God says about us, what our Father says about who you are as his daughter and how beautiful and where your beauty is and, and you as a son and where that masculinity comes from because your father speaks it into your life and says that you are enough and says that you are a man because of his design, not compared to magazines or the world or somebody else in our community. Um, exaggerations, lying, white lies, Man, when I want to exaggerate something, when I kind of want to fudge a little bit of it to make myself look a little better, or I'm going to leave out that detail because that doesn't really make me look good, it's a red flag. It reveals to me, man, I care more about what other people think than truth. Unhealthy desire to be liked and wanted. Man, and how hard is that when we drag that idol into our singleness, for those of you who are single? Um, it, it's... It's this paralyzing thing, um, and, and marriage is this great thing and a good thing and a gift from the Lord, and it's something that um, if you are wired in such a way and if you have that desire, I don't think that desire is a bad or evil or wicked thing. I think it's a God-given thing. I think scripture would say, yes, it's good. It's good to be married. It's good to pursue that, but at some point, there becomes a time where maybe you wrestle with the idea of, God, I have done it your way. And I have tried to be the person I'm supposed to be to get the thing that I, and I've tried to keep it off of the idol shelf and I've, I've really tried to trust you first and now here I am at 30 and no longer my expectations have now caught up with where I thought I was gonna be and so we compromise or we panic or we lose worship and joy because what we've taken is a good thing and a good desire and a desire that I wish and want for all my brothers and sisters, if it's the way God has wired you and, and called you to that. But we take it and we make it an idol, and it paralyzes us. That, uh, that certainly um, 
haunts a lot of us. It doesn't mean we give up those desires. It doesn't mean we say, okay, so I'm just not, if, if you're single in this room, so I'm just not supposed to do that? No, no, it doesn't. Uh, it means that we put them in their proper place. And it means we take those things that maybe are, are good, whether it's healthy eating, and we say, okay, but I put this in its proper place and I don't make it an idol of a body image issue or, or being liked in a healthy way and I take it and I make it an ultimate thing. Um, the cost of that stuff is great. It enslaves you. I mean, my, my thoughts... My thoughts can be consumed with what other people think, and, and I'll get an email from somebody that, you know, they just really didn't like something I did, or somebody will push back on something, and I'll just, and that'll, it'll consume my thoughts. It enslaves me. It exhausts us, the energy that it takes so often to try to get these counterfeit gods to hold water, to hold worth and value and our identity, and the, the exhaustion it takes to try to plug those holes and say, but I... This is, I think this is really what I want. And then ultimately it leaves us empty. It ultimately leaves us empty um, when we try to find our identity, our joy, our satisfaction in things that are not designed to, to be that. They're designed to be good things and compliments, but they're not designed to be the ultimate thing. So how do we change? Uh, how do we change? First, we identify what those idols are. We, we look we pray and we identify the idols that we have in our life. Um, Matthew 19, 16 through 22. I'm going to read you this story and we're going to unpack it here for a little bit. And behold, a man came up to him, talking about Jesus. A man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he, and he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This passage uh, shows us a lot of truth. There's a lot of things here. One of the things is absolutely Jesus' teaching on the power and the weight of the idol of money uh, and how money can be this handicapping thing that becomes our worship and, and can distract us from following the Lord and that it's harder uh, for a rich man to enter heaven, Jesus says, than for a camel which is a big animal, to go through the eye of a needle, which is a very small, impossible space for a camel to go. And so without a doubt, th this text is going to refer to that. But I want us to also zoom in and, and read into this text. I don't think this is just a lesson about money. I think this is a lesson about our Savior, Jesus Christ, identifying an idol. Here we've got a guy who comes and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do? I love you, man. I'm all about it. What do I have to do to look like you and to follow you and to get eternity? What do I need? And he says, well, do this. Follow, you know, do, these, do these things. Yeah, I did all those. Yes, I'm good. Checked all those boxes. And then Jesus, I believe, perceives an idol in his life and says, great. So just sell all you have and come and follow me. And we get the impression from the story that that's going to be really hard for him to do. 
because the grasp that that idol has on his life, the grasp that that counterfeit God of money and wealth and his security has robbing him of worshiping and following the true God. Jesus identifies those. For us, how we change, we identify what it is, what are those idols that we put before the Lord? What do you put before Christ in your life? What, whenever the Lord comes before you and the Holy Spirit tugs and pokes at your heart and says, hey, this has become an idol in your life, what are those things you say, no, no, don't, take, don't touch that, no, no, this is, I need this. It's this Jesus plus idea. Or it's Jesus on the back burner, I'm gonna go get this and then I'll reattach him later. What are those things? And uh, I want you to hear this. This is not just about a mean God who wants to keep us from having really good things. This is not a masochistic God that we serve that says, man, anytime they get something good, I'm gonna label it an idol and you gotta ditch it. That's not what we see. Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We have a God who is in the business of giving good gifts. We have a God who has sacrificed the ultimate in his only begotten son for those who would choose to follow him. We have a God who has suffered unlike we have suffered. We have a God who we should be able to relate to. Any suffering of our sacrifice pales in comparison to the God Almighty who has laid his son on a cross to die for us. Yet we're still commanded to trust him, to repent, to release those things, and this isn't just a, an excuse for your ability to be able to say, well, um, I, I really, as soon as I get something good, I'm going to flee from it. Because then that's just fear. And as soon as there's something good, then, oh, wait. Now, it's talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, have I put this before you? If every time I wrestled with idolatry in my relationship with Danielle, it was like, oh, we're going to have to separate. That's not God's design. That's not God's desire. And I'm going to unpack how that works here in a second because the solution to how we change is we identify it. We identify what those issues are, what those things that we're putting before Christ are. And then the answer is not to just identify it and then just try to stop. Oh man, we really hold this up too high and we really have too much of our value and our worth and our, our worship in this. So let's just try to stop. That's not the solution. The solution is to worship the one worthy of our worship to reorient our lives on what is better. The solution is to identify this idol and then not just try to stop it, but then look at what is good and what is better and what is life-giving and what is more satisfying. Uh, the Secret Service is the government agency that's in the business of protecting the counterfeit money industry. They're the ones, along with protecting the president, they're also in charge as a government agency of making sure counterfeit money doesn't get into our our monetary system. And the way they train their, their counterfeit artists and the people who are playing defense against those who would just crank out fake $100 bills is they don't ever study or they rarely study a counterfeit bill. They don't look at a counterfeit bill and see how it feels and looks. What they do is they just spend all of their time studying actual money, handling it, smelling it, looking at the colors, looking at the tinting, they train these people, not with what the counterfeits are so they can identify, then they train them by making them stare and feel the texture of actual money so that then when they do encounter fake money, 
they know it's fake because they've experienced the real thing. That's our call as Christians. Our call as Christians, if you are a follower in Christ and, and you tonight and, and maybe through this next worship set, the Lord reveals some stuff that says, hey, you've put this before me. You're chasing these things more than you're chasing me. You're finding your identity and your worship and your value in these things. And, and they're porous. And they're not going to hold water for you. And our solution is we stare at the thing that is worthy of our worship. We stare at Jesus. We stare at the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have a God who has come and said, I love you, and I am worthy of your worship. And, I, and what I say about who you are means everything. And so the idea of my idol of approval, that I need the approval of someone else or the companionship of someone else, I know, he says, I approve because of what Christ has done. Because we have a God who sent Jesus Christ to die and hang on a cross and rise again. And for those who put their faith in that, not striving to get there, but those who put their faith that our God has come to rescue. Our God has sent a savior to rescue us in all of our brokenness. That as I put my faith in that, that he says, yes, you're mine. And he says to you tonight, you are enough. You are mine. By the name of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ, you are enough. And let that be the truth that we actually believe and stare at until we believe. Surround yourself with other believers who speak that truth into your life. Surround your, your brain with, with images that intake things that make much of Jesus, not images that take you down other roads that, that bring in comparison or, or bring up false gods that we tend to worship. We stare at Christ and we say he is enough. And let that change our heart to where in the world around us offers us these counterfeit gods, we say no, We're, we are satisfied. We are pouring our life and our worship into something that is worthy. Let me pray for us. Father, you say, you say in Isaiah, you say in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Lord, would we believe that? Would we see that truth, Lord? Besides you, there is no God. And yet, Lord, we confess we are a room full of people who are constantly chasing after these counterfeit gods. Um, Lord, would you let us see more and more of you, Father? Would you reveal to us those idols? Would you reveal to us those places of, of worship that we chase, those places that we find our affection and our identity? And would the change, would the repentance from that be based on just seeing more of you? God, that is your Holy Spirit's doing and none other. So Father, do that work in the name of Jesus. Amen.